A brief prayer before we start. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be now and always pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Many of you know that uh, I was in New Zealand at Christmas, which was lovely. One of my holiday, pieces of holiday reading was the autobiography of the great American pastor, um, Eugene Peterson. Many of you may have come across him. He's the, the guy who did the message version of the Bible, the free translation of the message. Eugene Peterson, he's known actually as the pastor's pastor uh, because many of us pastors have deeply appreciated and valued his books. He died um, back in 2018. He wrote a classic um, book on pastoral ministry called The Contemplative Pastor. And he stresses in that book that one of the key aims of a pastor is to be subversive. That is, we are supposed to undermine the assumption that we all share that what we want from life must also be what God most wants for us as well. Now, I'm going to let him speak in his own words at some length um, because it's very relevant to what we're thinking about this morning. Um, bear in mind when I read that he, he pastored in suburban America, um, USA, um, but I think what he says is equally applicable to suburban London as well. So here we go. Listen, this is Eugene Peterson. He says, I learned early that the methods of my work as a pastor must match the realities of God's kingdom. The methods that make the kingdom of America strong, economic, military, technological, informational, are not suited to making the kingdom of God strong. I've had to learn a new methodology, he says, truth-telling, prayer, and telling stories. These are not methods very well adapted to raising the standard of living in suburbia or massaging the ego into fashionable shape. But America and suburbia and the ego, well, that's, that makes up my parish. Most of the individuals in this mix of ego, uh, America, suburbia, Britain, read what you want, suppose that the goals they have for themselves and the goals God has for them are the same. But that is the oldest religious mistake. It is refusing to imagine any real difference between God and us. Imagining God to be just a projection of our own desires and then hiring a priest or a pastor to manage the affairs between self and the projection that we've projected onto God. And I, as one of the pastors they have hired, I'm not having any of it. I am to be subversive. I am undermining the kingdom of self and establishing the kingdom of God. Eugene Peterson, he goes on to say cheekily, he says, he says you know, if, if the congregation I serve in had any idea um, uh, that I was trying to subvert this great idea, this assumption that what I want must be what God wants for me too, he says, if people realized how profoundly I was trying to undo that assumption, he said, they would be, they, it would throw them into a state of utter disbelief if ever they knew. He said, yet yeah, that is the role of the pastor. To which I would add, the role of the pastor is also to keep himself 
from becoming sucked in to this mix of thinking that what I want in life must automatically be what he wants, because I think it deep down in my heart just as much as everybody else. Well, the Apostle Paul gave to the church in uh, Corinth, in the Greek city of Corinth, he gave them no room for doubt that he wanted to overthrow, subvert this timeless human idea. He is here in chapter 12, he is blowing the idea that God values what we value. He is blowing it out of the water. So here we are back in 2 Corinthians for the second of what is really um, a, a two-part, a single two-part sermon. I preached the first part two weeks ago. You can find it on the website if you want to follow it up. You'll discover how many times I failed my driving test if you listen to it. It'll also give you the context a bit in a bit more detail than I'm going to give now. But let me just remind us of the context here. So Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ, had planted the church in Corinth. But since then, a group of highly polished professional preachers had arrived in the city. And they had sold a very different vision of the Christian life to the one the Apostle Paul sold. These slick operators offered to give what the Corinthians assumed God would want them to have. That is, uh, wisdom, power, strength, kudos in the eyes of the culture, the society in which they lived. Well, Paul has gone to great lengths in this letter to wean the church off these preachers. You might remember how he does it in chapter 11. He started, he, he plays the fool. Do you remember how these preachers, had, they love to boast in all their high-powered credentials? So Paul says, well, I'm going to do a bit of boasting as well. And what a strange curriculum vitae, CV, he presents. He, most, like I said last week, most of our CVs we try and boast about and, and, great and highlight the things that show how great we are and the strengths and the skills we've got. Paul focuses instead on his weaknesses and his failures. And just have a look, if you still want the Bible open, if you don't, then do open it again to 2 Corinthians, uh, end of chapter 11, on my version here, it's page 1274, I don't know if that's where you've got it, but uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30, because this is really a sort of mid, a, 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 a midway summary of this fool's speech, as it's known. And chapter 11, verse 30, Paul says, if I must boast... I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses. Right. Wow, okay. I'm going to boast about my weakness. So the plan is, this morning, what we're going to do, or what Paul actually is going to do, is I'm hoping just to, to, to show you what he's on about. The plan is to look at two more boasts that he makes and adds to the ones he's already listed. And both of them seem to be a response to the particular things that the false apostles and teachers were boasting about. And then we're going to answer the key question, which is, why boast in weakness? Why? Why do you boast in weakness? Well, let's have a look. The first of these two boasts, see my little, my little rabbit ears, my inverted commas, these boasts he is going to make. The first come in verses um, uh, 32 to 33. Uh, let me read those two verses, verses 32 and 33, right at the end of chapter 11. He says, in Damascus... The governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall 
and slipped through his hands. Now that is a picture of weakness, humiliation and defeat. These other uh, ministers who had come, these trained professional speakers, they commanded the respect of the wealthy, of the elite members of the culture. But this incident, as Paul's lowered through the wall in a basket, escaping from the authorities, shows him up as a rejected outsider, an outsider to respectable society, an outlaw. Do you remember why Paul was in Damascus? Some of you will know the story. He had gone there as an official representative of the authorities in Jerusalem to arrest Christians. But then, of course, on the way, he met with Jesus, and Jesus turned his life around. So it's such a contrast between how he was when he arrived and how he was when he left. See, when he arrived there, he was a respected member of the cultural elite. But he flees a despised, hunted man. He arrives in strength. He leaves in weakness. But he makes no apology because he is boasting in his weakness. And so then, chapter 12, we come to the second of two boasts that he is going to make. See, the false apostles, these false teachers, they boasted in their public speaking and in their ability to charge high fees. But they also let it be known that um, they like to boast, also they bragged, about their spiritual experiences, their mystical moments of divine insight. They boast about them, which of course they said, well, this gives us special knowledge and insight to be able to teach everybody. Impressed? Well, it's not very impressive compared to Paul's spiritual experiences. And you might start to wonder whether perhaps Paul's changed his tactics. I mean, he's been boasting in weaknesses, hasn't he? But he's about to let it be known that his spiritual experiences are far greater than theirs. So is he now boasting in his strengths? Well, let's see. I'm going to read. I'm going to read out verses 2 to 4. And you'll notice there that it seems as though Paul's talking about someone other than himself. That's how it'll seem. But it becomes clear that, in fact, he's talking about his own experience. So verses 2 and 4, let me just read them. Paul says, I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in his body or out of his body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. He was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no person is permitted to tell. So, funny, isn't it? If he's talking about himself, why does he say, I know a man? As though he's talking about someone else. Well, the point is that he's, the point is that he, he is, um, he's, what he describes, even though what he describes is so amazing, it's, he knows that it's not something he himself can boast about. <laughs> so he talks about it as though it had happened to someone else. Now, true, uh, this person, who is Paul, had seen into the very throne room of God. That's what the phrase, the third heaven, seems to refer to, like heaven's highest and holiest place. But could Paul boast about that? Could he take credit in it? I mean, of course not. He didn't even know if he had gone there in his body or not. So sort of powerless was he in the whole thing. 
This was given to him. So yes, Paul had far more powerful spiritual experiences than the false apostles did. I mean, they, they boasted in the things that they supposedly learned from these mystical experiences. But Paul's visions were so, uh, I'll reach for an old word, sublime, indescribable, ineffable. That's another old word, isn't it? But you reach for these words, abs- so amazing that he was not even permitted to speak of these things. See, compared to Paul, these false apostles were absolutely ignorant. And yet, Paul is not boasting in his strengths. He is not saying this to boast in his strengths. He will not do that. Verse 5, look, he says, I will boast about a man like that who received such visions, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, because I wouldn't be speak, I, I wouldn't be a fool, because I would be actually be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so that no one will think more of me than what is warranted by what I do or what I say. See, Paul's going. You know, I I can't chalk up these visions to my own credit. This was all God's gift. Paul's like, I was passive. When God whisked me up into heaven, I was as passive when he whisked me upwards into heaven as I was passive when I was lying there in that basket being lowered down from the walls. It was all him. He was doing it. It was him. I can't boast. So the question is then, why have you mentioned these visions? Well, I suppose it is partly true that it's, it, it puts the false apostles in their place. But that is not reason enough. If that was the only reason, he wouldn't have mentioned this. Now, when he says he will boast in weakness, he really means it. And so, the reason that he's willing to mention these amazing experiences at all is because they led directly to more weakness. They led directly to more weakness. Look at verse 7. Keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. There was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Do you know your own heart? I, I know mine. And how easily it puffs up with pride. At even the slightest success, puffs ourselves up. It all happens just instinctively, almost. Well, Paul was no different to us. And you can imagine how easily these visions could have gone to his head. He could have been puffed up with pride over others who hadn't had experiences like that. Well, God won't let that happen. He cares too much about the true happiness of Paul's heart and his life. So he gives Paul a gift, which in itself, was entirely unwelcome. But, and, of course, it was delivered by a most unwelcome source. It was delivered by Satan. Now, by the way, just to be clear here, it's not, it's not that God, our Father, is working together with Satan. That is not the point here. Emphatically not. It's not like they're on the same team. No, it, Satan always works with all his might 
against the living God. But the living God, our creator, is so powerful that he can even bend Satan's evil purpose to serve his own good purpose. Satan working at his full throttle against the Lord, the Lord redirects and takes that and uses it at the same time for his own purpose. And that is what happened here. So Satan sticks a thorn into Paul's flesh, intent on bringing him down. But in that very same action, God is at work through precisely the same situation to lift Paul up and to bless him. What was Paul's thorn in the flesh? Do you know what? If I could tell you that, I'd be capable of running a seminar in heaven because there's going to be a lot of people queuing up to discover exactly what the thorn in the flesh was. Nobody knows what Paul means by his thorn in the flesh. And you can imagine how many speculations there are about that. It's fascinating to, to go into it. I mean, the main options people suggest are, was it the persecutions he continually suffered? Was it some person who was an absolute pain to him, you know, continually? Or perhaps it was some physical or some psychological difficulty, some besetting temptation. We don't know. He doesn't say. What we do know is that he was desperate to be rid of this debilitating problem. It, was, it weakened him. It was, it was debilitating. I mean, have you, you tried walking with a thorn in your foot? It's terrible. It's, a, it's utterly debilitating. But, and, and you can see how desperate he was to get rid of it. Verse 8, we, we read, read there, you can hear his desperation. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. It's not just that three times he went, oh Lord, please take this thorn away. No, it's like three times he, you know, he, he obviously had these three periods of intense prayer. Begging the Lord, take this away from me, take this away. Why didn't God take it away? You can imagine, Paul, surely you want me to be at peace. Take it away. Surely you want me to be uh, happy. Take it away. Why doesn't he? Well, three times Paul pleaded. Jesus' answer comes in verse 9. What words these are. Verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in weakness. There we have it. That's the answer to that key question. Why did Paul boast in his weakness? Jesus' grace, we only experience its full sufficiency when we are weak. Jesus' power, it is displayed supremely in our lives when we don't have any power, when we are weak. When Paul has no power of his own, that's when everybody can see that the enormous power in his ministry must be from God alone. And so Paul gladly boasts, even, he goes on to say, delights in weakness. Just listen to these remarkable words, and they are remarkable words. Verses, second half of verse 9 and verse 10. Let me just read them. Just, just take these in. Therefore, he says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then 
I am dead. See, it's not that that thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, it's not that it was good in itself. Weakness is not good in itself. No. But when some difficulty enters our lives, and you might be under the, in the grip of such a difficulty now, we need to learn to ask a new question, which is Jesus, we say, how are you going to display your power in me in this mess? How are you going to reveal your glory and your wisdom in this situation, which looks, frankly, to me, completely hopeless? How are you going to do it, Lord, because I'm sure that you will? Paul boasted in his weaknesses because he boasted, if you think about it, he boasted in his weaknesses because he boasts in the Lord. He says it back in chapter 10, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Quoting the prophet Jeremiah, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He boasts in weakness because he's boasting in the Lord. And, and it's in our weaknesses that the Lord, Jesus, is demonstrated and revealed. And, and just remember as well, how... See, how else could the strength and power of Jesus be revealed in us other than by our weaknesses? What did the power and strength of Jesus look like? It wasn't the swaggering arrogance of a self-assured human ego. It was the self-giving, self-offering love of the cross where he gave himself in weakness. So, of course, that's what power has to look like in our lives. It can't look anything other than that. Now, sorry, excuse the slightly graphic imagery, but it's worth it. Paul here is basically sticking a crowbar into the mindset of the Corinthian church, and he is <coughs> applying all his force to it and saying, you need to think differently. He's not so much subverting it as completely turning it on its head. These, the Corinthians, they loved these teachers that promised to give them what they assumed God wanted for them. Power, respectability, wisdom, kudos in the eyes of their society and their culture. But God did not want them to have those things. He wants all his people, you see. He wants you and me to know his grace for real. Not an imitation version of his grace, not a wonky version of his grace, but his real grace. He wants us to know his power for real. And so he lets us feel our weakness. He lets us experience our insufficiency. He lets us grasp our ignorance. Now, all of this subverts the kingdom of self and it turns our expectations of life on their heads. I mentioned one wonderful pastor, um, Eugene Peterson. Let me mention another. He's my pastor, really. This is the one I read when I'm in a pickle. John Newton. Unfortunately, he died about 200 years ago, so I can't call him. But I can read him. I wanna, uh, he, wrote, he was the one who wrote Amazing Grace nearly 250 years ago now. And he was, um, he was converted to Jesus and became one of the most... He was a slave trader initially. Converted, became one of the most helpful pastors this country has ever known. Just listen to these words that come from one of his letters. It's slightly old language, but it's, it's, it's clear what he's saying. He says, one great cause of our frequent conflicts 
is that we have a secret desire to be rich, yet it is the Lord's design to make us poor. We want to gain the ability to do something, but he arranges our circumstances to convince us that we can do nothing. We want to build up a store of power in ourselves. He would have us absolutely dependent on him. But, writes John Newton, if we are content to be weak so that his power may be magnified in us, we shall make our enemies know that we are strong. See, God does not want to give us the things that this world considers honorable, valuable, respectable, and wise. He has something much better for us, namely real grace, real strength, real wisdom that comes from heaven. See, if we think we're strong, then actually we're weak. But when we know ourselves to be weak, well then his power can rush in and can fill up those hollow places where our inability and incapacity has left space. Now I wonder if some of us have experienced this in their lives. I have, and I'm profoundly grateful, although it's not always easy. Of course it's not, and it hasn't been for you either if you know this, but it is real. Now others of you, I'm aware, have not set out on the Christian life yet, and all of this may sound incredibly odd to you. You think, what is all this? Okay, bear with it. The time will come when you go, ah, I see. It will come. It will eventually fall into place. But I want to end now with a story of another wonderful pastor, um, John Stott, this time, um, that illustrates a lot of what we've been talking about. And it's, um, it, it's, it, it's, it's John Stott's recollection. Um, he was a pastor in London for many years. Um, but this is a, actually a recollection of the last night of a mission that he led in Sydney, in Australia, um, at the university back in the 50s, 58. And Stott had just received a telegram. I'm going back a bit. He had just received a telegram from London that his father had died. And he'd lost his voice. And he was due to preach the last night of this uh, mission. And uh, let me read an account of that night. And then with that I will end. Stott re recalls, at 7.30... Half an hour before the final meeting was due to begin, I was waiting in a side room. Some students were with me, and I whispered a request to the mission committee chairman to read the thorn in the flesh verses from 2 Corinthians 12. He did. And the conversation between Jesus and Paul came alive to me. Paul, I beg you to take it away from me, Jesus. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul, I will all the more gladly boast of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me, for when I am weak, that I am strong. After the reading, this student prayed over me and for me, and I walked to the platform. When the time came for my address, all I can say is that I croaked the gospel through the microphone in a monotone. I was utterly unable to modulate my voice or exert my personality in any way. But all the while, I was crying to the Lord to fulfill his promise to perfect his power in my weakness. Then at the end, after a straightforward instruction on how to come to Christ, I issued an invitation, and there was an immediate and reasonably large response. 
I've been back to Australia seven or eight times since then, and on every occasion, somebody has come up to me and said, do you remember the final service of the 1958 mission in the University Great Hall when you lost your voice? I came to Christ that night. Strength in weakness, real. Let's pray. It's real because Jesus, you are real, crucified in weakness, yet you live now by God's power and are active among us. Teach us from this passage this morning, very famous that it is. Teach us new and important things that we desperately need to know. Subvert in us those thoughts of this world that lead us away from true joy. And instead, may we know your strength in our weakness. By the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus.